0: Welcome to this Gateway Podcast. For more Gateway info, check out wwwgateway com. Enjoy. I want to take my life in my own hands. I love danger. (laughs) And adrenaline, you know. Nothing like running from a crowd. Uh, And do a series, I don't know how long it'll be, it um, could be one message. could be 30 minutes. Uh, on the subject, divorce and remarriage, uh, uh, and look at a biblical perspective. I, I know that some of you will be thinking, well, it doesn't apply to me, I'm not even married, um, or, or whatever. But I, I very much doubt, given our current climate, that there would be one of us, probably, who haven't had our lives at least touched by, by this whole phenomenon. If it's not us, it's someone in our close family, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, it's friends we know really well. This, this is something that touches the lives of many, many people, including many, many Christians. And uh, it's really important that we have some kind of biblical perspective on it. Actually, I meant to do this study uh, some time ago, never quite got to it, um, and sort of ha- have decided to come back and revisit it. Over the years, we have tried to tackle some pretty difficult subjects. Um, I, did a, I did a series of messages called Straight Talking on Homosexuality. I looked at abortion. We've looked at women in ministry and leadership. Um, it's not that I have a death wish. Um, and, and I'm not just trying to be novel or controversial. Some people actually enjoy um, you know, being on the cutting edge of of novelty. Um, I really don't, uh, but, but I do long that we, are, that we think biblically and, and that we have some kind of understanding of, of, of some of these incredibly difficult subjects. Um, when Aidan and I, Aidan and Steve and I were in Nepal, um, both this time and last time, we got, to, we got talking about the bravery of uh, the Gurkhas, you know, the, the Nepali soldiers who are world-renowned for, for their incredible bravery, and as we were talking with some of the Nepalis about their bravery, they, they kept saying this thing, you know, and they would say, oh, there's a fine line between bravery and stupidity. And uh, they would relate that to to the deeds of the Gurkhas, and I kind of feel a bit like that. When I said to someone that I was going to do this subject, they said, you're brave, and immediately into my mind came, you know, the Nepali phrase. Uh, There's a fine line between bravery and stupidity, and I guess by the end of the series we'll know on which side of the line um, I'm standing. When I, when I came into Christian things um, and into Pentecostal things particularly, there were really two broad approaches to the whole issue of divorce and remarriage. There was, for want of a better term, the hard line view. I, I called it the traditional view of firstly, but as I thought about that, I thought, I don't know whether that's accurate. Um, and so I've kind of rephrased it as the hard line view. And the hard line view effectively Goes like this it's that marriage is a permanent, mystical, indissoluble union of two souls, that divorce is always wrong, that if perchance separation does occur, then remarriage is never morally permissible, and people who do get remarried are guilty of adultery. Uh, The sins of divorce and remarriage are forgivable, but people tarnished by these sins are not permitted to minister publicly. Uh, in, in the church. And the one scripture that these people really knew by heart was Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, where it says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And, uh, and people who were in the hardline category would constantly kind of refer to this particular verse and, and, and say, this is God's feeling about divorce. I always used to really battle with that and think, you know, boy, it's a fine line between hating divorce and hating the divorcee, and it seems to me that the church kind of gets muddled and, and blurs that line. Over the years, and I'm probably giving you a little bit of an insight into where this series is going to go, but I have a different take on this passage. I don't believe it's God saying, like, I hate divorce, and people who get, in di- get divorced, you know, it's just, it's just, like, so wrong, and I, I hate that situation. I actually think this is the heart of somebody who's absolutely been broken by divorce. I don't know whether you know, but did you know God was a divorcee? Have you ever thought about that? The Bible says that God is a divorcee. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, and Hosea chapter 2, verse 2, it talks about God who committed himself in a covenant relationship of marriage to Israel and as a result of their unfaithfulness was finally brought to a place where he had to let them go. And when God says, I hate divorce, I don't think it's the heart of one who says, I just, I just hate it and I don't like people doing it. It's the heart of one saying, I hate it when that happens because I know the pain. I know the personal pain and brokenness that this situation produces and I hate what it does to people. All right? A less stringent kind of view within the hardline camp allows for divorce in the case of adultery and desertion, but never for remarriage until one of the couple had died. Basically, the hardline view sees the first marriage as the only legitimate marriage and would at the very least imply but more generally state that God does not recognize subsequent marriages. If you do happen to remarry, then as I said, you're committing an adultery, because in God's eyes, you are still married to your former spouse. And you hear that phrase in this debate, in God's eyes. You know, you are still married in in to your former spouse. So remarriage then is illegitimate, it's immoral, it's unscriptural. Uh, co- pastors who found themselves in this camp simply refused to marry divorcees under any circumstances. I found it a little hypocritical that they would tell them to go and get remarried in some other church and then come back and fellowship at their church. But but that was done with regularity. Uh, congregational and denominational bylaws uh, stated. Uh, no divorced person could teach, sing in the choir, or hold any public office in the church. Now, I know that may seem a little draconian to some of you, but that was regular uh, in many, many churches, and, and it's, still, it's still found in, in uh, Protestant Pentecostal churches. So essentially, divorcees really were relegated to being second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. It was ironic that a murderer, a thief, uh, a fornicator, a homosexual, an extortioner, uh, any other sinner could be forgiven and restored without stain to meaningful service, but a divorcee uh, could be forgiven but remained unable to be fully restored to meaningful service. You, in, in the denomination that I was part of for uh, 20 plus years, uh, I think it might have changed now, but up until the time I left, which was probably about seven years ago, um, divorced people could not hold credentials in that in that movement. You were not allowed to be a pastor. Now, a second approach was was a more merciful approach, but to be honest, was also a more murky view in terms of defending it scripturally. And, and people would say, you know, I, I just can't believe that God would treat people in that kind of manner. So so we would move toward the idea that God did allow divorce and remarriage. but But having been challenged about the scriptural basis for that position, there was a lot of murkiness, we, we used general and sometimes quite unconvincing arguments to sustain that position. And I say we because to be truthful, I've always gravitated toward this approach rather than the hardline one. The hardline view in, in its extreme form just did not seem to me to be able to work pastorally. Now, I realize the dangers in trying to determine truth by what works. But I reasoned on the other hand that if it was God's truth, then at least it should work. Um, My conviction was that God is good and he was just and he was kind and he was merciful and he was gracious, but when it came to applying the hardline view to people, uh, to divorcees, it seemed anything but that in in many cases. uh, There were times when the hardline view seemed simply to penalise people who were already hurting victims in ways that seemed cruel and heartless. I remember very early in my ministry, um, a, a young couple that had got married, hadn't been married that long, had had twins, and and the husband started studying in another city uh, not too far away, and he so he would commute backwards and forwards, and um, it was pretty obvious pretty quickly that something wasn't right with this, this young guy, and uh, when finally things began to unravel and he was challenged. He was having an affair with another student in another city and he, he left his young wife and, and her twins, just up and left. And, um, you know, it was an incredibly difficult situation for her but, but the thing that sticks in my mind was the way that people related to this young woman and there were people who came to her and said, I mean, it sounds bizarre, but I remember one lady saying to her, do you like prayer? And this young girl who's hurting so bad she's barely able to pray said, Well, you know, no, I mean, you know, I, I guess I'd, I, you know, I'd like to be able to pray more. And she said, Well, you better get used to it because you're going to be spending a lot of time by yourself. And it would be really good if you ask God for the gift of intercession to fill the hours because you can't remarry. Not unless he dies. And that was the hard line kind of approach. And that just, it, it seems so wrong it seems so heartless and so cruel. Um, Some of you might be thinking there, you know, Don, to to determine truth on the basis of those kinds of feelings is pathetically inadequate, you know? I mean, you can't approach truth like that, and quite frankly, I agree, Uh, because people use those kinds of arguments to justify things like homosexuality and abortion and other what are clearly unscriptural practices. And I... And I wasn't happy with where I stood. I had this kind of gut in a feeling about what I thought, but but as I said, it was it was real murky. And if someone had to challenge me scripturally, I would have been scrambling to try and say, "I think this is what the Bible says." Over the years, I've tried to clarify my thoughts. Uh, I suspect that a lot of you either have sat or are sitting right where I did, thinking that can't be right, but. But, but what does the Bible say? And the purpose of what I want to do in these, uh, in these weeks is just to kind of try and clarify that with you and um, to see if we can't come to some kind of biblical understanding of what this subject might mean. Now, I, I'm, I'm aware that some of you will be shocked and disappointed by the conclusions I come to. Some of you will be surprised and pleased. Uh, quite frankly, you don't have to agree with what I'm um, sharing with you. Uh, you, you. You know, you think through the matter yourself. You're allowed to come to your own conclusions. I hope that you will give time to my arguments. I hope that you simply won't take the approach. Uh, I've already made up my mind, so don't confuse me with any more information. I know where I stand. Bang. What I, what I would hope is that you would just open your heart and listen. And then, and then, I come to conclusions that you might like to. After that, I'm I'm also aware as I begin this series that I am stepping into a world of controversy, theologically, personally, domestically. I'm stepping into a world of pain and brokenness when I deal with this subject. I I, I promise you, I'll to the best of my ability, I will tread carefully. But I suspect the chances of treading on somebody's toes, uh, the risk is pretty high. And I'm asking your forgiveness in advance. I'm asking that you'd be kind in your comments to me as I seek to be kind in my comments to you and in dealing with this subject. All right? Intro over. Uh, Just one other comment before I launch in. Uh, I want to give an acknowledgement to the work of David Instone Brewer. Uh, I've read widely for this subject, um, as is my habit, And and I've read some really good stuff and some stuff that I wouldn't want to recommend, but David Instone's Brewer's material is absolutely outstanding. He is a Baptist pastor. I think he's a research fellow at Tyndale House in Cambridge, England. And for any who would like to perhaps go further than I do, um, I would highly recommend his material. I want to start today, uh, in the time that we have, I'm hoping it won't be long, but I want to look back in history I mean, it doesn't take a profit to see that in contemporary society, the state of marriage is an institution that isn't particularly healthy, but we would be quite wrong to assume that it is totally a modern phenomenon. And the ancient world as well had its problems when it came to this issue of marriage and divorce. Actually, the ancient world was governed by a code that was known as the Hammurabi Code. Hammurabi was a king... Uh, that reigned in Babylon 1,800 years before Christ. And the code that he introduced marked the beginning of impartial justice across a wide area. Up until that time, it had been incredibly local and very, very arbitrary. Hammurabi Code was really a step forward and uh, it kind of unified justice across wide wide areas. Uh, it solved many social problems that existed in the ancient world. As many as it solved, however, it, it left a lot of really difficult problems unsolved. And one of the issues that the Hammurabi Code really didn't solve was the issue of women who had been divorced by their husbands. In the ancient world a husband could leave his wife without any money or property. Uh, He was not required by this code to provide any ongoing support for her uh, or for her children. In fact the code made the life of a divorced woman even more difficult. It created an incredibly difficult predicament for them because the code allowed the husband to return at any point in time and reclaim her and her children. Now what that meant was the provisions of this code meant the chances of remarriage for any woman that had been divorced meant the chances were almost nil. No other man would want to come along and marry a woman who could be reclaimed by by her former husband at any time. At any time, you could lose this wife that you'd married, lose the stepchildren that you had supported, and lose any kind of economic benefit that you might be expecting as a result of investments and shared properties or whatever. I mean, he could wait until you had done all the work and these kids were economic units, and then he could come along and just say, I'm taking them back. And the code allowed that as a possibility. Very, very few men then were prepared to take the risk of marrying an abandoned woman, and they were more often than not left unsupported and unprotected. And divorced women and widows were absolutely on the bottom of the food chain in terms of human life. Now, the Mosaic Law came along and provided a much, much fairer deal for woman who'd been divorced. In fact, the Mosaic Code was more enlightened and caring right across the board. As an example, the Hammurabi Code treated people differently according to their importance. And it said, if you hurt an ordinary person, you might be subject to a fine. But if the person you hurt was an important person, then you were in big trouble and you paid in proportion to their importance. The law of Moses, by contrast, considered all to be equal. Poor, rich, powerful, um, no matter where you felt in in the spectrum, all were equal. There was no distinction made between ordinary and important, and it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth across the board. Now, when we use, by the way, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we tend to think of it being a kind of uh, an ancient, out-of-date, aggressive, vengeful way of dealing with things. But when an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was introduced, it was a limitation put on unrestrained revenge, not an encouragement of it. See, what happened was people would get hurt, so they would get their friends and go back and hurt more, and then you know, Newton's cradle would start revenge and, and counter revenge and this law said no no that's not the way it functions. You unrestrained revenge is not a possibility. So it wasn't ancient and, and out of date. It was actually a wonderful thing that provided a limitation on revenge. One of the most impressive differences between the Hammurabi Code and the Mosaic Law was what was the laws that pertained to marriage and divorce and remarriage. As we've seen in most countries in the ancient Near East it was very very difficult for an abandoned woman to be able to get remarried. In Israel this was corrected because A divorced woman had the right to receive a divorce certificate from a husband. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, Suppose a woman was divorced by a first husband because he found something disgraceful about her. He wrote out divorce papers or a divorce certificate and gave them to her and then sent her away. Now, You could not just simply send your wife away without these papers. And what these papers meant was that it was allowable and safe for her to be remarried and that there was absolutely no chance that the first husband could return one day and demand his wife back. And the words, the consistent words on every divorce paper read like this, you are now free to marry. And and at times it would say, as long as he's Jewish, any man you wish. And all of the Divorce certificates that have survived from the earliest times have these words. The fact that an Israeli woman could be given a divorce certificate doesn't suggest, and I'm not trying to make it suggest, that God thought divorce was a good idea. The Bible clearly indicates that he designed marriage to be lifelong. But what the law of Moses did was it recognized that we are fallen creatures and that in our sinfulness, sometimes we make decisions that impact incredibly negatively on our marriage relationships. And those relationships can be broken and trampled beyond our capacity to restore them. The law recognized that. You know, there are people who, and I've had people say this to me, Don, God never intended for there to be divorce, and so there shouldn't be divorce. And and the simple answer to that is, of course, God didn't intend for there to be divorce, but God didn't intend for there to be sin either. What he did was recognizing our fallenness, he made provision for both of them. It wasn't his idea. He wasn't seeking to encourage it. He was just recognizing that in our brokenness, we tread that path, and, and, and he wanted to make provision for us the law ensured that in such a case, the woman didn't suffer more than could be helped, more than was necessary. What it effectively did was it limited the damage that divorce inflicted on the woman, and it forced men to give their wife that certificate that would allow them the possibility of remarriage. Basically, it was saying the man can't have his cake and eat it too. He can't abandon his wife and then expect that at some time in the future, he's able just simply to reclaim her at his will. Whatever sin caused the marriage to break up, the law ensured that there would be a clean ending to that relationship and that neither partner would be able to hold the other as prisoner to a dead relationship. That was the intent of the law. Now, what kind of grounds did the Old Testament allow for divorce? What constituted a valid reason or reasons for divorce? I'd like to walk through these with you quickly. Deuteronomy 24, the passage that we just looked at, points out the first one. It says, when a man has taken a wife and married her and, it hap- and he happens to find that she has no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. The Hebrew, therefore, some uncleanness simply means a thing of nakedness or a cause of sexual immorality. Most scholars suggest that it's likely that it refers to adultery. Okay, and it says in the case of a person committing an adultery, uh, committing adultery then, then let them write out a bill of divorce. You know, it seems in God's economy that the victim of adultery is allowed the choice as to whether the marriage continues or not. This passage wasn't commanding divorce as some rabbis interpreted it uh, meaning. What, what it was simply saying is there is the recognition that at times trust has been so eroded and so compromised by sexual unfaithfulness that the continuation of the marriage just simply isn't possible. And, and the law says in that instance it's okay to write out a certificate of divorce. Now, it may surprise you to know this, but it wasn't the only grounds for divorce in the Old Testament. I want to show you another passage. This is, what, this is in Exodus 21, 10 to 11. It says... Uh, I'll explain the context in a minute, but it says, if he marries another woman, she retains all her full rights to meals, clothing, and marital relations. If he fails to do any of these things, she must be given her freedom without cost. Now, the context here is, it's talking about a slave who gets married to her master. Now, if that master was to take a second wife, in Old Testament times, polygamy was practised, Uh, And and again, while not encouraging this, the law recognizes that this was often the way it was and seeks to restrain and put some boundaries around it. And it says if he takes a second wife, as would uh, imaginably be, be the case, he might be tempted to favor the second and neglect the first. This law ensures that he cannot withhold from his first wife three essentials of marriage. And if he did, she was free to divorce him. And the three are these. They seem strange. But rights to meals, rights to clothing, and rights to conjugal love, marital relations. Now, at first glance, you might be tempted to dismiss this passage as completely irrelevant. You know, I mean, it's just an ancient passage considering divorce and remarriage in that era. It doesn't have any relationship to the 21st century because, number one, we don't practice polygamy. We don't take a second wife in addition to and concurrent with a first. and, And we don't marry slaves, although there are some marriages that would seem to qualify on that point. But before you dismiss it as irrelevant... Just note that this is case law, not statute law, which basically means the principles are more important than the details. And since it's case law, you can put polygamy and the fact that it's a slave, you can put the details aside and just look simply at the principles that apply to marriages that involve neglect. And this speaks to that. The rabbis, by the way, reasoned, and I think they reasoned correctly, that if a slave wife had the right to divorce a husband for these three reasons, then a free wife would certainly have had the same rights. As well, they argued, that if a wife had these rights, a husband would most certainly have these rights. So these four things then were regarded as grounds for divorce in Old Testament times. Sexual unfaithfulness, the failure to provide food, the failure to provide clothing, and the neglect of conjugal affection and love. It's really interesting that... These four items provided the basis for the marriage vows that were exchanged between Jewish couples. They promised to feed, to clothe, to exchange conjugal love, and to be faithful to each other. Actually, the man promised to provide the food and clothing. The woman promised to cook the food and sew the cloth, and they both promised to share conjugal love and be faithful to one another. Let me kind of summarize that in modern day terms. What that can be summed up as, is they promised material support, physical affection, and sexual faithfulness. And uh, it's interesting to note, if you think back to your own marriage vows, that essentially we make exactly those promises. And it's not by coincidence. In Ephesians chapter 5, 29, it talks about a man who nourishes and cherishes his wife. To nourish his to feed, to cherish, to warm and clothe. And, and our modern-day vows basically are a commitment to do those kinds of things. We promise to care for materially, to give our affection to. We promise sexual faithfulness, fidelity. And we say words like, if you use the old uh, you know, marriage vows, with my body I thee worship. We promise conjugal affection and love. The modern-day vows that we make simply can be traced very easily, very clearly Back to Exodus chapter 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 24. When these vows in an Old Testament setting were consistently broken with a dimension of hard-heartedness, then there was grounds for divorce. In those cases, by the way, the marriage was considered to be ended by the person who broke the vows and not by the person who ultimately acted to end the broken contract. A person could not divorce their spouse simply because they'd grown tired of them or they thought there was another that looked better. The spouse had to have broken these vows in some demonstrable manner. Even when they were broken, divorce was not compulsory and the innocent partner had the choice and was encouraged to forgive and to seek to restore and to rebuild the relationship wherever it was possible. When you look at the Old Testament, it's It's wonderful in the sense that it is very aware of human sin, and had very practical laws to deal with its consequences. And I'd like to suggest to you, and in the weeks to follow we'll look at this, that the New Testament is not less practical than the Old Testament. I find it incredibly ironic that according, at least to the really hardline approach uh, to divorce, that the New Testament, which is supposed to highlight God's grace and His forgiveness, is actually interpreted as being much harder and much more stringent with regard the victims of marital abuse and failure in the New Testament, the hardline interpreters assume that Jesus introduced a much newer and much more stringent and stricter policy with regard to divorce that overturned the Old Testament principle that the victim had the right and the possibility to bring to an end their suffering when there was consistent refusal to acknowledge the marriage vows. It's important to note that Jesus regarded the Old Testament, by the way, as God's word, and he regarded every letter as important. Look at Matthew. Don't suppose that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. I did not come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning. Heaven and earth may disappear, but I promise you that not even a period or a comma will ever disappear from the law. Everything written in it must happen. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial parts of the law, all the offerings and sacrifices and all that stuff. That came to an end in terms of the work that he did on the cross and that was fulfilled there. But in terms of the moral law, the Bible clearly indicates that God wants us to live that out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus never disregarded or broke the Old Testament law. What he did do was flout the traditions that the Pharisees had added to the law, but he affirmed Old Testament moral law and he widened its application. For example, in Matthew chapter 25, he affirmed the law against murder, but then he spoke about the source from which murder arises and he talked about anger. All right? He didn't he didn't put the law aside. He simply affirmed it and widened its application. He did the same in Matthew 5:27 to verse 30, where he affirmed the law against adultery, but then he highlighted the inner lust that led to that situation. So he affirms the law and he widens its application. You don't find Jesus criticizing what the Old Testament has said, though what he does do is frequently challenge and criticize the way people interpret it what I'm heading to this morning is kind of setting the scene, and and I want to just ask these two questions. Did Jesus disagree with the Mosaic law on the subject of divorce? Did he intend to change it and make it more stringent? My, My opinion is that the answer to both those questions is no, that he didn't disagree with what had already been written in the law, and he did not intend to change it and make it more stringent. Now, I'm aware that this immediately puts me on a crash course, on a collision course with the hardline view of divorce that assumes, even if it doesn't state, it assumes that Jesus intended to repudiate, to reject Moses' law as invalid on this subject in my opinion, there's absolutely no scriptural precedence to suggest that Jesus intended to change the law of Moses on any point, including the law of divorce. On the contrary, I think he assumed the inspiration of the Old Testament. Now, I know that this is not a great place to put a comma, and I'd love to go on and and, and take you into what Jesus says, because there are some statements where it seems that Jesus just straight out forbids divorce, and and next Sunday morning, I want to, God willing, address those. But I'm kind of trying to set a scene and just say, you know, the Old Testament is regarded as kind of harsh, legalistic, uh, and the New Testament is is grace and kindness. And and yet on this instance, we've swapped them around because the Old Testament is definitely gracious. It limited the damage that divorce inflicted upon people. It didn't suggest that divorce was a good idea, but it recognized that it took place in the context of human sinfulness and and our fallenness, and it sought to limit and put boundaries around that so that people would not be damaged beyond repair. And, And my deep conviction is that the New Testament isn't any less practical, and that Jesus cares about divorcees and he cares about the possibility of there being restoration for them. And when the Bible says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, it's not as I said, because he's taken this kind of puritanical stand of, of, I really, it really messes with my head that these people do what I've told them not to. And I just, I hate it. On the contrary, it's the broken heart of someone who's been through a situation that has rent them so deeply that they look on someone going through a similar circumstance and say, you know what? I hate it when that happens. I just, I just, it just tears me up. I hate it. And there's a a world of difference between those two approaches to that one particular verse. And for me, and and um, I guess I'm trying to make, kind of refocus your thing. For me, that says everything about the God that I see the New Testament talking about. It seems to me that that's what Jesus is more like. But anyway, we do need to interact and, and work with some of the things that Jesus said. We'll do that next week, okay? Once again, thanks for listening to this Gateway podcast. For sermon notes and more information, check out wwwgateway